You've tuned in to the Message to Kings podcast, where we tell the complete history. Welcome back to the Message to Kings podcast. This is your host, Brett Heaston. Episode 12, The Descendants of Shem. Imagine three spiritual giants, Noah, Abraham, and Shem, having a conversation. Shem looked at Abraham. You should have been there. The people ran to the ark as the crushing tide came at them. I reached over the side to grab a man's hand, seeing the horror on his face, but an angel came out of nowhere and grabbed my hand. Shem grabbed his hand like he still felt the touch. And the angel said, They are beyond rescue. Ignoring their cries, I watched six Nephilim run down a hillside trying to outrun a flash flood, only to be overtaken. I could see them crying out in terror, but I couldn't hear over the torrent of water collapsing upon us. What I could hear was the the beast and the leviathons. The dinosaurs, Abraham said. Yes, the dinosaurs. They were too big for the ark, Noah said sadly. The burst from the leviathon was so great it even thundered over the pounding tide and tidal surges. I could even hear its cries over the pounding waves. It was terrifying. Shem looked at his aging father. Next, Dad ran inside the ark and commanded all of us to follow, for when the water and the sky fell, we were submerged for a brief moment. Now I know why we pitched the top of the ark as well. We were all relieved when we resurfaced, but amazed as the ark began to float on the waters, and the entire earth and the land began to disappear. This would have been a crazy conversation, but it well could have happened. Noah lived 350 years after the flood and was still alive at the time of Abraham, who was born 300 years after the flood. The Bible does not speak of them living together or meeting, but there are Jewish traditions such as a Jewish book, the book of Jasher, which is published in 17th century, which claims to be the book referenced in the Bible in Samuel and Joshua. You can find this book on the internet. It's fascinating, but most scholars believe it's not the referenced book in the Bible. Yet in this book, these three men spend much time together. It's easy to see Shem received his father's blessing because Abraham was from his family line, not Japheth. Fascinating to see the inheritance passed down from father to son to another to another. For Abraham was a descendant of Shem. Other traditions have Shem being the mysterious figure, king of Salem and priest of God, Melchizedek. In the last podcast, we related Western civilization to the colonization of Japheth. Shem settles his family in parts of Turkey, Mesopotamia, Pakistan, and as far away as India. He is considered the father of the East, parts of the Middle East, with the exception of Turkey and Canaan. Shem is most popularly regarded as the eldest son, though some traditions regard him as the second son. Whether he is the oldest or not, he clearly receives the birthright for Abraham comes from his family line. Shem was around 100 years old at the time of the flood, and he lived another 500 years after this making his age at death 600 years. The children of Shem are Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lux, and Aram, in addition to his daughters. Abraham, the patriarch of the Hebrews and Arabs, is a descendant of Arphaxad. 
They had a cool name, our Foxen. Imagine being a kid on the playground in school. Everyone wants our Foxen on their team. Kind of a cool name. Shem is in Islamic literature, and one Muslim tradition has Shem being one of the people that God made Jesus resurrect as a sign to the children of Israel. The first century historian Flavius Josephus, among many others, recounted the tradition that these five sons were the primogenitors of the nations of Elam, Assyria, Chaldea, Lydia, and Syria. If you look at the podcast artwork cover, you can see an image of the places that Josephus claims were settled by the grandsons of Noah. It's pretty cool. It helped me to understand the colonization of the planet. I will post this to Facebook as well. Jewish traditions are pretty cool. If In a few of the many extra-biblical sources that describe them, Shem is also credited with killing Nimrod, the son of Cush. Other writers date races to these brothers, stating God has divided the earth among Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and attributed different skin colors to them, literally blessing them with different skin colors, light-colored skin for the, for the Japhethites, medium dark or brown for the Shemites, and very dark or black for the Hamites. Before we speak of the nations formed by his descendants, it's important to see the spiritual heritage or blessing bestowed on Shem by exploring the concept of spiritual blessings. Spiritual blessings are those endowments of favor by God. Imagine it like a target on an individual where God says to his angels, Give him anything he asks for and anything else he dreams up in his heart. Send him help when he needs it. Send him resources. Make life easier on this one. Break off any yoke of the devil off this one and give him gifts when the time is right. Yes, make him blessed. This is why Jacob fought for this blessing. This is why brothers fought over the blessing. This is why there was so much turmoil in families over blessings. It was customary to give the blessings to the oldest, but God likes to do things differently. God doesn't always favor the primogenitor or the firstborn. See Jacob, Joseph, David, Solomon, and the list goes on and on. None of these were the firstborn. The good thing is, if our God is a God of a thousand hills, he has enough blessing for everybody. Only jealousy and foolishness and envy or a lie of the devil can come between us and our brothers. There is always enough. God will make sure of that. God's promises are enough. Soon we will see how Abraham's promises would be inherited by his family and later an entire nation. But first, let's look at Shem and the areas of the world he is responsible for. If Shem colonized the east, his descendants settled and colonized the most populous areas of the earth, China and India and Southeast Asia. In fact, most of the most populous areas of the 1040 window are in this region of the world. The 1040 window is an evangelical term for the area between 10 degrees north latitude to 40 degrees north latitude. It compromises two-thirds of the world's population and is the home of the majority of the world's unevangelized countries. I'll put a link on the Facebook page to the 1040 window. This could be considered a negative, but it is a positive for in the end, for it presents the greatest opportunity for God to move to bring his salvation to the earth and in fact, it is the area of the greatest moves of God on the planet. For people are coming to the knowledge of Jesus daily in areas that were once considered unreachable. Here are some statistics coming out of China. According to a recent publication by Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, 
Up to 10,000 people convert daily to Christianity in China. God is calling back the sons of Shem, who God originally chose to be the blessed one of Noah's sons. In the words of another evangelical group in China, it's time to get back to Jerusalem. So what did the world look like at 1500 BC? If you look at the Middle East to the East. Um, In Mesopotamia, prior to the emergence of Assyria and Babylon, there was an empire called the Akkadian Empire, which was dominated by the city of Sumer. One of its most famous kings was Sargon of Akkad, whose identity is evident through many archaeological discoveries. Some say he claimed to be the first world conqueror. Well, maybe this is right, but, but as we know, Nimrod came first. Eventually, their empire collapsed and released control to two future people groups, the Assyrians based in Nineveh and the Babylonians. Assyria has a long way to go to be, a na- to be the nation-state and empire that takes over the northern kingdom of Israel around 722 B.C. And Nineveh has a long way to come to be the city that could boast the world's largest population in 650 B.C. At its height, the Assyrian Empire was considered a cruel master and ruler of much of the world. Their empire was made and kept through fear. They were siege warfare masters, and they had a huge artillery force. They celebrated gore and death and were masters of intimidation, and their god was actually the god of war. But prior to 1500 BC, Assyria was just a city-state. It had a, a small, growing empire, but generally speaking, Nineveh was, a, was at its center. It was founded by Nibron originally, but possibly settled by the descendants of Shem instead of Ham. And as a city, it was a city of trade located at the northern part of Mesopotamia. And prior to 1500 BC, it had many foreign rulers rule it periodically. They emerged independent when a king named Adasi appeared on the scene. Nineveh and Assyria could claim their own unique identity about the time of Abraham. Assyria would continue to grow until about the time of the kings of Israel, when it emerged on the world stage as one of the world's most powerful empires. But for this time period, it was an empire in the making through its capital, Nineveh, which would be conquered and reconquered, yet it would keep its own unique identity. Babylon was founded by Nimrod and was the location of his tower. This was the place of the rebellion after the flood. You have to imagine the ridiculousness of the tower in the sight of Noah and his sons. Noah and Shem could have only laughed at this attempt to thwart God's plan. After seeing the flood, this tower idea must have been just foolishness to them. The tower project was abandoned and Babylon disappeared from history for a while. The Assyrians owned it for a while until the Babylonians returned to the world stage with a very notable king named Hammurabi. Hammurabi was a very efficient ruler. He established bureaucracy and a centralized government. He was also a conqueror. Eventually, he won control over the Mesopotamian area, wrestling what he could from Assyria. What Hammurabi is most known for was his organized legal code. In 1901, a copy of the Code of Hammurabi was discovered at Susa. It is now in the Louvre in Paris. Generations of war wore down the Babylonians so that their future kings gave way to other empires as cities rebelled from the Babylonians until its empire was severely reduced. 
The city continued to prosper until the sack of Babylon by the Hittites, which occurred in 1595 B.C. The sacking of a city, which, with the disappearance of the Noans, followed by the Mycenaean collapse, and the end of other civilizations, is called by scholars the Bronze Age Collapse. We'll discuss this when the Bronze Age Collapse, or Early Dark Ages, hit their climax with the fall of Mycenae in Greece around 1200 B.C., at the time of the judges of Israel. Iran and Pakistan were colonized by the descendants of Shem. The Indus Valley civilization became prominent to history. This advanced civilization developed along the Indus River Valley in India and Pakistan. To date, they believe there was over a thousand cities and a massive population base. There was irrigation and uniform architecture and uniformity in city designs. They had unique weights and measures. They have discovered early evidence of dental arts and their pottery was advanced for the age and they created and used seals which have formed a basis of much archaeological study. Writing system was advanced as well. Their trade network expanded all the way to Babylon. A curious artifact discovered through archaeology is the first appearance of a swastika on a seal which later became a symbol of Nazi Germany. It was used in this time period and later adopted by Eastern religions as well. At about 1500 BC, this civilization collapsed, just like many other civilizations leading to that Bronze Age collapse we talked about earlier. It truly was like an early Dark Ages. Old empires and civilizations disappeared. The collapse of this civilization was most likely not due to military invasion, but most likely due to a series of natural disasters and a falling away of central authority, which gave way to foreigners and decentralization for the people who moved outside of the cities. The religions of this region were the forerunners of Hindu, and today India and Pakistan have over a billion people, and they make up a large portion of the world's population. Pakistan is primarily Muslim, while India is primarily Hindu. In the location of modern-day China, an independent and large civilization arose. In the region of the Yellow River Valley, the Shang Dynasty ruled China. There was an early form of writing and a high level of workmanship in the form of bronze, jade, stone, and bones. They have early histories and a great amount of prehistory, but I'm not going to go there. Most scholars agree the Shang is generally considered the first verifiable civilization in Chinese history. Their religion consisted of a mixture of shamanism, divination, and sacrifice, but in general it was a very basic belief system compared to what would develop generations later in China compared to Buddhism and Confucianism. Today China has over a billion people and is an emerging leader on the world stage. So, so far we have covered the Assyrians who would later conquer northern Israel and the Babylonians who would capture Jerusalem and conquer the southern state of Israel or Judah. And we talked about the very beginnings of the various populous states of China and India or Pakistan. So this is where we transition back to the Hebrews. And according to Genesis 14, Abraham rescues his nephew Lot after a battle with five kings. Abraham sees a great deal of spoil from this victory, and he meets a mysterious king of Salem, whose name is Melchizedek. And after giving him a portion of the loot, he is blessed by this mysterious figure. Many students of the Bible point to this figure being a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, or Shem himself, who would have been living at this time. 
This is the words of Melchizedek. Genesis 14, 18. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. The blessing calls Abraham the possessor of heaven and earth. What a blessing that Abraham receives. It echoes the words of Jesus in Mark 9:23. Anything is possible for one who believes. We'll be very soon transitioning from the acts of a family to an act of a nation. Soon Israel will be judged and weighed as a nation instead of a small family. Of the estimated 40 million people on the planet in 1500 BC, 3 million of them are Hebrews. This promise, once only given to Abraham, now lays with a nation, not just one man or family. It is for a family of God, the nation of the Hebrews, whose name will soon change to the Israelites, for the promised land will soon be prepared for their arrival. A land of milk and honey awaits them. All they must do is walk faithfully with God and obey His decrees and possess the land already promised. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, I think of the word legacy. Ask myself, am I leaving a blessing for those who come after me? As a father, do my children run faster than me? Are things easier for them because I paid the price? I want their floor to be my ceiling. And as a teacher, I want my students to advance beyond me. In the case of Shem, his descendants could point back at a righteous man who walked with God. In the case of Abraham, who was considered the father of the faith, he actually had grandfathers and grandfathers who came before him. And this is where I ask you the same question. What is your legacy to the ones who come after you? I hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings. Stay tuned next week as we talk about the Hittites, Egyptians, and the descendants of Canaan and the return of the Nephilim. If you have any questions or if you'd like to chat, please email me at messagetokings at gmail.com. Tune in next week to the Message to Kings podcast.